Here is the reading. It's St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed to his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Here endeth the reading. Thanks be to God. As we sit, let's pray. Our Father God, we pray for the guidance of your Holy Spirit as we focus on St. Paul's explanation of how your grace has transformed our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1970, a writer called Richard Titmus published a book entitled The Gift Relationship, in which he contrasted the system of voluntary blood donations under the NHS in Britain with the then US system under which blood donors were paid for their donations. He showed that the US system had a serious problem of contaminated blood, whereas the UK donations were almost invariably of high quality. Now, Titmus's study was criticized on his details, but I think it's generally agreed that he performed a very useful service in drawing attention to gift motivated by altruism as an important element in social relationships, in contrast to sole reliance on market exchanges. His belief was that we should do more to foster gift as a way of pursuing a better society. Now, Christians, above all, 
should understand and appreciate the category of gift as the basis for relationship. You probably noted in verse 8 in our reading, for it is by grace you have been saved, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. To which St. Paul adds in verse 9, to emphasize this is not an exchange or a contract, not by works, so no one can boast. We contribute nothing to establishing our relationship with God. There is no exchange. We're like the the recipients of blood donations in the John Ratcliffe who are entirely dependent on the donors. So what is this life-giving gift that God has given us in Christ? St. Paul spells this out by contrasting before and after what they were in verses 1 to 3, what they are in verses 4 to 9, and then for good measure, he adds in verse 10, henceforth, what difference does it make? So let's look at these in turn. So before, what they were, verses 1 to 3. St. Paul does not mince his words about the plight of the recipients of his letter before they became Christians. And we should note that he includes all descriptions in the description. See all of us in verse 3. It was not that the situation of the inhabitants of Ephesus and its region were particularly dire. He's talking here about every man, every person. He describes them and us as previously being dead, enslaved, and condemned. Let's start verse 1. Dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, transgressions carries the sense of crossing a boundary or deviation from a right path. Sins, the sense of falling short of a standard. We are rebels and we're failures. So why dead? It's probable that St. Paul is not thinking here of physical death, but of alienation from the life of God. So in chapter 4, verse 18, he refers to those who are separated from the life of God. This is the tragedy of the human existence. The people who were created by God for relationship with God are now living without God. Imagine, if you will, living your life in just two dimensions. When you could be living in three and think how your life would be diminished. So if we live as if the material world is all that there is, then our lives are diminished, and we will be frustrated. We might as well be dead. The vital dimension of a relationship with God is missing. And then secondly, enslaved in verses 2 and 3. St. Paul here identifies three forces or powers that rule our lives. First, the ways of this world, by which he means a whole social system that keeps us in cultural bondage. It would not have been difficult to identify that in first century Rome, as the system was largely dominated by various pagan cults. At Ephesus, 
the worship of Diana and by the Roman cult of the emperor designed to keep people in line with Roman authority. We don't, thank God, experience such explicit control. But we can equally be enslaved by our culture as the degree of addiction to social media, not only among the young, makes evident. A recent blog from the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity drew attention to the data that Google has amassed about each one of us and to the algorithms that Google employs to enable them to ensure that we are led to websites that feed our prejudices and to adverts that reflect our personal aspirations. And the writer adds, ironically, that Google has become like God, knowing everything about us. But second, St. Paul identifies the power behind the cultural throne. Not the emperor, as his readers might have expected, but the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The New Testament writers are agreed that the sinful mayhem of human communities is a malevolent spiritual being. The same Satan who tempted Jesus in the wilderness. And then third, the cravings of our sinful nature, verse 3, which St. Paul identifies as seeking gratification of his desires and thoughts. One immediately thinks of natural desires gone astray, as for sex, food, and sleep. It's interesting how many of the popular holiday adverts seek to gain our custom by hinting at lust, greed, and sloth. But St. Paul also identifies thoughts such as intellectual pride, false ambition, malicious or vengeful thoughts, and disdain for the truth. Maybe those are much closer to the bone for many of us. To sum up, we are enslaved because we are, in the words of the baptism service, enthralled to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And thirdly, we were condemned. See verse 3. We were by nature objects of wrath. God's wrath is his righteous and implacable hostility to evil of every kind his refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve to condemn it. And note that Paul writes, we were objects of God's wrath by nature. It's probable that what he has in mind is the concept of solidarity of the human race in Adam, as he expounds it in Romans 5. As Adam rebelled against God and fell into sin, so have we. We might like to note in passing that this understanding of the human condition is profoundly out of kilter with the thinking of those who provide cultural leadership today. For example, in a recent book, the Guardian columnist George Monbiot explicitly rejects the Christian diagnosis and argues that with the right social narratives and incentives, the human race can be persuaded to live in peace and justice. I wish. My vote is with St. Paul. 
before we were dead, enslaved, and condemned. Now let's look at after. After, verses 4 to 9. Note that verse 4 begins, but God. God has taken the initiative and has acted to save them, to rescue them from their dire condition. They are no longer dead, but alive in Christ. They are no longer enslaved, but free in Christ. No longer condemned, but accepted in Christ. Once again, St. Paul is appealing to an idea of solidarity. In or with Christ, no longer in Adam. They are God's new people, God's new community, identified with Christ. In a word, they are Christians. Now, amazingly, these verses teach that we are, verse 5, made alive with Christ, verse 6, raised up with Christ, and also, verse 6, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. These correspond to the resurrection, the ascension, and the rule of Christ. As we say in the creed, on the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God. In other words, God's salvation is not only correcting the serious failings of our previous existence, it's giving us a whole new identity, worth, and purpose. It's like creation all over again. We become participants in God's plan to put his creation to rights with a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. To help us understand this, perhaps we might consider the experience of Syrian refugees in the United Kingdom. Many have come out of truly awful situations in places they used to call home. They've been driven out by community violence and civil war, their livelihoods and social networks destroyed. Many arrive here seeking a new life and future. I don't think we could begin to understand their joy when they're given permission to remain indefinitely in the UK, to enjoy the security that generally characterizes our daily life. They are permitted to work and benefit from public services such as the National Health Service and schooling and can be involved in community life and eventually political life. They are given a social identity and a future hope. When a person becomes a Christian, they too receive a new identity and a new hope even more dramatic than that experienced by a refugee given asylum. But why has God done this for us? Because of his mercy, verse 4, his love, verse 4, his kindness, verse 7. His mercy because he views our plight with compassion. His love because he longs to rescue fallen humanity and his kindness because we're incapable of helping ourselves. 
And why does God do this? The answer is his grace. The end of verse 5, beginning of verse 8, the same phrase. It is by grace you have been saved. Grace is God's consistent and unfailing favor towards us, expressed in action. Favor expressed in action. Action to rescue us, to heal our sinful nature. We don't generally think well of favor. It's linked in our minds to favoritism and currying favor, which have quite negative connotations. But not here. It ought to have the meaning of approval or liking for someone, and hence an act of kindness far beyond what is due. And St. Paul is adamant that all the action comes from God. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves or to earn our salvation. Let me read again verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's God's initiative, it's his grace, and that grace comes as a gift from God. There is no transaction requiring us to bring something to the table. Our role is simply confined to faith, trusting God that he will do for us what he has promised and accepting the gift that he offers. There's no point in negotiating with God on the terms. It's take it or leave it. But once we have said yes, then the transformation can begin. And what a transformation it is. Let me read again to you verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's workmanship. That's a word which could easily be used of a work of art. And we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. God's grace in Christ creates a new human being, a new people of God, a fresh start for humankind. And now we have a purpose, good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. Contrast this with the dullness of the lives experienced by so many of our contemporaries. A life characterized by a routine of earning a living by going to work, finding a partner, bringing up a family, shopping for necessities and sometimes luxuries, seeking entertainment and living for holidays and days off. A routine which often lacks any abiding purpose or direction except self-satisfaction. So what are these good works? Of course, it depends on our circumstances. It may be in the home, bringing up children, caring for an older person, providing hospitality to others. It may be at work, serving those who are our clients or customers and caring for those with whom we work. 
maybe in the neighborhood, helping out those who are struggling in daily life. It may be giving time and energy within the church community. But whatever our particular calling, the pattern is that of grace. We need to be motivated by mercy, love, and kindness to show favor to others, meeting their needs without regard for what they might do for us. We need, in short, to be like Jesus and hence witnessing to the reality of his grace in our lives. Let me conclude. Before we were dead, cut off from the life of God, we were enslaved, enthralled to the world, the flesh, and the devil. After, we are in Christ. And that's not just the old self patched up and cleaned a bit, but completely transformed, a new creation. And we're made alive with Christ, raised up with Christ, and seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And we are made ready for good works. And all of this is down to grace, God's favor, motivated by his mercy, love, and kindness. God's favor towards us put into action, though we deserve nothing and there is nothing that we can contribute. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Then we can echo the words of John Newton, which we will sing at the end of this service. Before, a slave trader, a serial sexual abuser, a corrupt and violent trader. After, a life transformed into living for Christ, preaching the gospel and serving his people. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. May that be true of each one of us. Amen.